Welcome to the fifth episode of The Simulated Universe, where we live on the border between science, science fiction, and a whole lot of other areas. I'm your host, Riz Verk, and I've taken a bit of a break from the podcast, but starting it up again now here at the beginning of 2021. Today we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, BCIs, or brain-computer interfaces, which are also called BMIs, or brain-machine interfaces. Those of you who've read my book know that it's a topic that I have a lot of interest in, uh, and it brings up all kinds of sci-fi references. Uh, It was one of the stages on the road to the simulation point in my book, The Simulation Hypothesis, and the idea was that we would need to be able to send information into the brain and read it out of the brain in order to get to the simulation point, where we'll be able to make our own version of the matrix that is basically indistinguishable from physical reality. In the Matrix, you'll remember that Neo had a cable stuck into him. Actually, all the humans did, and that was how the Matrix worked. Um, that's not the only reference. Uh, you know, one of my favorite movies back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s was uh, Total Recall, the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger, not the remake. But you know, that was based on a Philip K. Dick novel where they were able to implant memories of going on a vacation so that you didn't have to have the expense and time of actually going on the vacation, but it felt like you had been there. Uh, But it's not all dystopic. If you think of BCI today, the initial applications are going to be more uh, medical and therapeutic for people that have spinal cord injuries, etc. But there was an episode of Black Mirror that I really liked called San Junipero, where um, people that were elder and were in um, uh, care facilities because of health issues, they could put these two little pods on their forehead and it would immediately bring them into the simulation, uh, which was obviously more pleasant than the uh, reality given the issues they were having physically. Um, So how far away are we from uh, uh, being able to do something like San Junipero or uh, Ready Player Two or The Matrix? Uh, so my guest today is Joseph Artuzo, who is Director of Marketing and Business Development at OpenBCI. Um, Joseph is responsible for guiding OpenBCI's commercialization and communication strategies, and previously he was at companies like Salesforce and is a graduate of Columbia University. OpenBCI is an interesting company. Uh, they create open source tools for biosensing and neuroscience. Their mission is to lower the barrier to entry for brain-computer interfaces while ensuring that these technologies are adopted in the consumer landscape in an ethical way that protects user agency and mental health. Um, Those of you who pay attention know that BCIs have been in the news a lot lately with Elon Musk and his pig, uh, and more recently a monkey that they chipped to try to teach video games. So let's switch over to my conversation with Joe and ask him how far away we are from those science fiction scenarios that I mentioned. Joe? Thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I've been looking forward to this because, as you know, brain-computer interfaces is, has been an interest of mine for some time, both in the science fiction side and in the state of the art. And I'm sure that our listeners would love to hear you know, more about OpenBCI and how you got involved. So maybe you can just start with giving us a little background. You know, yeah. How did you end up in the brain-computer interface business? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm the director of marketing and business development at OpenBCI. We're a, we're a small company, but I'm looking after kind of the communications and commercialization stuff, but a lot of other little things as well. Um, so you can maybe guess by the title, I didn't come in from the technical side. 
of, you know, I wasn't a neuroscientist and I wasn't an electrical engineer, although those are both excellent skills if you're looking to break into the industry. Um, it was actually uh, a college uh, college roommate and rugby teammate of mine, um, Connor Russomano. Uh, we were friends in college. And then, you know, afterwards, he went on to found OpenBCI with one of his master's program professors. And I went on to work in the like marketing and advertising industries, um, lived in London for a bit, worked with some, some fun companies. Uh, and just OpenBCI has kind of a superpower of like unconventional work relationships with, with people. Uh, and Connor kind of reached back out and was like, do you want to help us out with like, we've got a little bit of marketing budget now. And like, that's what you're doing. So you want to like run our social and search stuff. And, uh, I did that for a couple of years for, you know, a, a, a thousand bucks a month or a couple hundred bucks a month or something. And then it just grew. The company grew. They were doing better. Uh, I was looking for a new challenge maybe about two years ago. And, uh, you know, I was still hanging out with Connor regularly in Brooklyn. And we started talking about it and was like, what if we did this full time for real? And uh, yeah, that was about two years ago. That's great. And and maybe you can just describe what is Open BCI's mission and how is it different from, say, you know, uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink where, you know, he's putting the chip into the pig and now into the monkeys, uh, <laughs> eventually into humans, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, OpenBCI, uh, we make we make open source tools for neuroscience and biosensing. And we've been we've been doing it since 2014. And the open source part of this is a big, you know, that's that's a big guiding principle for us because our mission from the start was to just we wanted as many people as possible to use it. And we thought that that was one of the best vehicles for doing it. Um, so, you know, the, the tools that we've put out into the world so far are under, you know, the MIT license, which allows for very flexible use, recommercialization, uh, all kinds of stuff that, you know, would raise some eyebrows in other industries. But we've actually been remarkably successful at getting these tools into people's hands in about 90 different countries now. Um, and we owe a lot of it to to the open source community that sort of sprung around it and like pursued use cases that we would have never been able to address ourselves. Right. So when you say open source, now I'm used to thinking of open source as software. Is there a hardware component here as well? or There is a hard, yeah. So we make, we make hardware, you know, our, our primary business is making and selling hardware. And then increasingly in, in recent years, it's been kind of selling expertise and, and engineering sort of service work on top of that to, um, yeah, the, the larger companies interested in pursuing this. Uh, on the hardware side, I, I guess technically maybe it's not like you don't open source the hardware, but our, our schematics are like on GitHub. You can go find the PCB designs, and if you have the skills, you can like make one. If you know how to like, if you know how to make a PCB, you can go do it. Uh, and what we found is like and you know, and define PCB. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So our, our kind of main products are like a printed circuit board is, you know, and, and our main products are these two sort of circuit board chips. You know, they're shaped like octagons, about the size of like a Chips Ahoy. We, we sometimes call them cookies. Um, and uh, it lets you detect different electrical activity from the body. And that's kind of the core product. And then we sell headsets that you can like put on your head to place electrodes at key locations. And we also sell, you know, electrodes and other accessories for getting that electrical data out of the body and into a computer. Okay, that makes sense. Well, so look, what I've been dying to ask you is if we think about, you know, 
full brain-computer interfaces where you can send information into the brain and get information out, yeah. kind of like in the Matrix, which I define as one of the stages on the road to the simulation point, uh, right, to the point where we would be able to make our own version of the Matrix. You know, how far along are we when you think about – I mean, obviously, we're mostly concerned with reading minds right now, right, right. <laughs> and reading yeah. electrical signals. So, but, but, you know, how far along are we in that process? What are some of the challenges that come up? And then, you know, we'd love for you to comment on will we ever be able to send signals directly into the brain as well? So, yeah, as a company, OpenBCI has really been focused on the – we make that same distinction between two big distinctions in this whole neurotech industry that I help divide up companies and approaches. There's the reading from the brain and then writing to the brain. You know, so the reading side would be like detecting the electrical activity that's happening in it. Uh, and, you know, doing something with that. And then writing is actually like stimulating the brain with electricity or magnetic, you know, frequencies or uh, ultrasound. And then the other distinction would be invasive and non-invasive. So you brought up Neuralink before. Neuralink's invasive. It's inside the skull. Um, you know, you can get much higher signal quality, but obviously a lot more complicated to be drilling into people's heads to place your electrodes. Uh, non-invasive <laughs> happens outside the skull. And that's what we do. So OpenBCI today is very much on the non-invasive read-only, you know, sort of quadrant of this industry. Uh, and I mean, on the reading side, I, I won't be able to give a, a complete sort of up-to-date lit review of the space. Uh, I, I would defer to, you know, more scientifically oriented professions for that. But, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on on the read, the read side of the equation, uh, involved in kind of like classifying emotions is really the biggest area that that's, I think money's flowing in and people are really pursuing that as it's, it's applicable for so many different places that, you know, trying to, to build a prediction device for, okay, you know, this is, this is different signals from your body over time. You're classifying these with your emotional states as well. Can I then use that to predict your emotional state in some way? Uh, that's really interesting. And then on the stimulation side, you know, we haven't dabbled in it too much, but I, I, I try to stay as up-to-date as possible with all the papers that get published using OpenBCI hardware. And to your, you know, to your question about the, you know, how close are we to the matrix? We're very far. You know, we're not, it's not happening in the next couple of years or anything, but the, the proof of concepts are being done now, you know, and like the, the, the Xerox Park, you know, stage of, of graphical operating systems or something is, is I'd say where we are at the moment. Um, huh. And, and so who are some of the who are some of the places that are experimenting with the, the right side of it or, or are well, there universities doing research? Yeah, the, the University of Washington has this uh, has this group. I think it's the, the CNT. Uh, I can't remember the name of the act, but the CNT at the University of Washington, um, they they have one of the craziest applications of, of our tools that we were involved in that is just a great example of the right side of things, which is uh, they did, made this thing called BrainNet. That's what they called it. And um, you can find Brain it. BrainNet, okay. BrainNet, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And uh, it was a three-player game. And uh, two of the people, it was a, like a Tetris thing. And two people were looking at the Tetris game and thinking what you need to do. Like you need to move left, you need to move right, you need to rotate it you need to drop the piece and there was a third person 
uh, who wasn't looking at the game. And all, all three of these people had EEG systems monitoring their brain activity. And then the person who wasn't looking at the screen was the one like at the controls of what they should do in the Tetris game. And he had a, they were using magnetic stimulation to like process this, the commands received by the other two people looking at the screen and like non-verbally relay that through magnetic stimulation into his brain. And he would have to guess, you know, like what command to issue. And, you know, they had an accuracy level well above chance, you know, throughout the, the, the study. Uh, if you go read their write-ups on it, it, it's like, that was one of the moments that I was, that like a real sci-fi, oh my, like, wow, like this is, this is happening. You know, so this was kind of like an electronic telepathic <laughs> transmission in a way, right? Yeah, it was very much like EEG plus magnetic stimulation for, you know, three-player telepathy. <laughs> right. Yeah, I do remember reading about this, but were they using OpenBCI tools? They used OpenBCI for the for the read part, at least. And, okay, uh, yeah. Huh. yeah. Well, yeah, so it does start to sound a little, you know, sci-fi. Now, you mentioned EEGs and you mentioned... Uh, magnetic stimulation. So, so what are the different approaches that can be used to either read or write? Like I know, for example, in the gaming world, you know, there's that company with the glove uh, that lets that looks for electrical signals in the actual arm to know that you are about to click, and so it it can do it much faster because it can sense those electrical signals. So, what are the different approaches that that are being taken to to read? Let's start with read. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- most of it is, I mean, uh, there's, you can tell by the acronyms a lot of times, it's like EEG, EMG, EOG, which is, uh, they're all like electrical, electrically based. So a lot of the ones, you, you know, you place some sort of, you place a conductive sensor, you know, you place an electrode on whatever part of the body you're interested in collecting a signal from. The human body creates all kinds of electricities, uh, electricity. And so, you know, if you flex your, flex your forearm, you can see the electrical activity spike and what, what that, that company you mentioned, and this is what control labs did really well that, you know, got them acquired by Facebook for, you know, half a billion to a billion dollars. Um, uh, you can actually see when you start recording, okay, you know, move your, move your pointer finger, you know, you see this clear spike as you train, you know, a computer to look for that over and over again, you can, see the spike before the movement actually, you can start to like predict it before the movement actually happens and even like predict the movement without it happening at all. You know, there's like little tiny fluctuations in the muscles and electrical signals before you actually even make the intent to move that, that are detectable and can be used to like trigger actions. So I think, I think that that's what, you know, EMG is probably going to be much more, mainstream as like a control scheme you know we're going to be using our muscles to control things still rather than like thinking it alone um so emg is emg are the signals that go to the muscles yeah electromyography yeah i might be completely wrong here and get made fun of for uh for my (laughs) acronym deconstruction it's been a long week (laughs) yep (laughs) no worries I think, I mean, we definitely think EMG is going to be like the control scheme. You know, that's what you're going to be reading. You can still be reading from muscles because our muscles are much more reliable as triggers than like brain-based, you know, controllers. uh, Or, you know, if you're trying to just think to click, 
it's only maybe 80% accurate at the moment. And like, imagine if your mouse didn't work 20% of the time, you'd throw the thing out the window pretty quickly, you know? So, <laughs> so wait, wait, what's only 80% uh, effective? Is it the EMG, the muscular or the, uh, the brain? I would uh, say like brain-based, brain-based stuff. A lot of it's based around research for like, it would be called like motor imagery, um, which is when you try and use EEG signals and like training you know, a, a machine learning pipeline to like, okay, I'm going to think left. And, you know, that's going to be my, I'm going to map me thinking left to hitting the left arrow key. And I'm going to, okay, now I'm going to focus on, you know, mapping the right arrow key. And now I'm going to focus on mapping down and up. So you kind of like, you train a system with your brainwave patterns. Uh, and, you know, you could be thinking banana the whole time you did it instead of left. But as long as you were consistent about, you know, okay, when I think banana, I want it to move left, it would work. Um, that stuff, it, it's really cool when you get it working and when you train it well, but it's not, I don't, I think it's going to be a while before we make a reliable system that works across a large popu population for people to really replace, you know, using their thumbs and mouse and keyboard for stuff. Whereas muscle signals are, are very easy to trigger with 100%, you know, accuracy. It's like, okay, I'm going to flex my arm and I, I meant to do it. I know I meant to do it and it picked it up. And right. In fact, Brink, Brink Bionics was the, the company that I was mentioning. Yeah, that's right. They're the yeah. ones you love. So you're saying that's pretty accurate. So that's almost hundred percent accurate. Yeah. I think that's going to be, that's going to be where it's at in, you know, in the next couple, you know, three to five years, I think whatever Facebook's been cooking up with, with control labs and they've debuted a little bit of it, you know, showing kind of like keyboards you know, interfaces where they're just wearing these bracelet kind of things. Um, I think that's going to be, that's going to be out there soon. So was that the focus of control labs? It was using uh, EMGs yeah. uh, signals primarily. Cause I, I thought, uh, you know, Facebook made them part of their, I guess their reality labs, they're calling it now. Yep. Uh, and they're also experimenting with, uh, you know, more, uh, reading the brain as well, right? So are, are they, you know, have they put out anything interesting on, on just being able to read the brain directly without relying on these muscular signals? Facebook's, they're, you know, they're, they're definitely doing it all over there. They've got the, they've got the funds and they've been hiring the talent. Um, you know, I don't know what they've been working on most recently. I, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to see it, but they have a very different approach to the open versus closed uh, you know, <laughs> puzzle that we talked right, about earlier. Right, But when you get to the accuracy, I mean, can you do it down to the level of which uh, – like like I know one of the things they were demonstrating was typing without mm -hmm. actually physically typing. I mean, can you know, how accurate are they at this point where, you know, if they would know I'm about to type – you know, CNN.com versus FoxNews.com, or is it just they know I'm about to type something, you know? If you, I mean, if you've, I think this is where it gets into the, this is the machine learning part of the puzzle, where it's like, for one person, you know, if you're doing it for yourself, and I, I built this thing, and I've trained it myself over and over again, I, you know, I think it works, it works now, you know, if you've spent enough time to kind of train, like, okay, you know, I've got my layout, and you know, this much of a, of a muscle movement in my middle finger is the difference between a T and an H, you know, and, but it's when you start to try and go population level with any of those individual tools that it gets really, that's when, you know, your accuracy breaks down because from person to person, it, it differs enough that, you know, that it's not a one size fits all yet. 
and I don't think I don't think the data sets are out there. There's not like a universal human forearm muscle movement data set that people can can start to build off of, which is you know also kind of one of our motivations about being being open, sharing data, trying to establish like a, you know, just a, a higher baseline for anybody else to start from. And are you guys uh, opening a database then? as well like i mean doesn't this get into all kinds of interesting privacy issues because <laughs> you're totally. talking about uh you know patterns of electrical activity in your body right i mean do you run across any of the like hipaa compliance in the <laughs> medical industry or not really there's yeah. there's all, all that's at play yeah um you know we don't we don't like col- we don't build or collect data sets as a company at the moment but we've actually been we've been trying to get involved in this uh there was like a there's this tool called EEG Notebooks that um, Neurotech X, you know, great community for anyone interested in Neurotech to go check out, by the way. Um, uh, we tried to get involved in this tool that they've been building to, like, help create this sort of, hey, we want to create an open access data set that has, you know, certain uh, kind of like tried and true classic neuroscience experiments and, like, use our large global user base to like kind of crowdsource this this classic neuroscience experiments and build up a data set that anybody could use who might not be able to like get their own test subjects to come into a lab. Um, and we've been going through, you know, the you got to do a, a institutional review board. You've got to talk to people at we partnered with, uh, you know, like a, a research hospital at the University of Toronto. And we're trying to get that all through the ethics committees there. and. It's a, you know, it's a real, there's a real process that goes into it if you're trying to do it the, the right way. Um, and our hope out of all of that is to produce something that can, you know, that can just be used by, by future companies, future researchers, so that they don't have to start from scratch. Yeah, you know, this reminds me a little bit of, um, uh, you know, perhaps I'm dating myself here a little bit, but I, I remember the voice recognition software back in the 90s, you know. Yeah. And there was a company called Dragon, I think, that was one of the the first ones. I can't remember if it was Kurzweil or, or somebody else, uh, but I think it was Boston-based. And, you know, to use it, you would have to train uh, the software. Like, you'd put it on your computer and you'd have to say, you know, open Microsoft Word, you know, <laughs> uh, play QuickTime Movie. And, yeah. and you'd have to say it often enough, and then it would basically get the pattern of your voice, right? And today, we've got much better voice recognition, you know, uh, with Siri, it's still not perfect, or Alexa, but, you know, it, it's much more generic. I mean, I, I personally always get annoyed when I call into these places, and they don't let me choose one or two, and they want me to say, refill right. my prescription, or whatever it is, right? <laughs> uh, but, so, so what was it that got that industry, you know, from having to train to this more generic? Was it a different set of algorithms, do, do you know, or... Uh, was it just more data being available publicly that, that they could train on? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. You know, I, I'm not sure what the what the tipping point was for that tech, but it I, I my guess would just be that, yeah, it was more more data, like you know, accumulated data over time, letting them kind of create these more general like data set. Okay, across the population, that's that word, you know, and even though it's right. said a little differently. And it, it definitely feels like we're at the same we're at the same point. We're at the we're at the like clumsy, you know, eighty percent right. Train my computer to write my essay for me. <laughs> you know, headsets uh, stage in the '90s. I remember I remember trying one of those back in the day and then giving up on it for years. And then finally right. using like 
I saw somebody like dictate a two paragraph text into their phone, you know, maybe 10 years ago. And I was like, oh, my God, it, it's finally here. You know, yeah, like, it actually, it actually works. Well, you know, one of the innovations with Siri, you know, which came out of the Stanford Research Institute, SRI down the road here, mm -hmm. was that it, they were using the cloud now to do some of this data recognition, right? So it would send what you said up to the cloud and then it could compare it probably to a pretty large data set. I mean, I'm guessing here, I don't know the, the details of the technology, uh, as opposed to just doing it you know, on my phone or just on my computer. Yeah. Uh, and so I wonder if this database that you're talking about might not be kind of important to, for this technology ever to see the light of day. <laughs> it is, it 100% is. And, and you know, this is where uh, I am, I'm, Every day, looking for suggestions, and you know, curious to get your view on this. Actually, uh, would be like, you know, how do we prevent? It? I saw this happen. How do we prevent that data? Just valuable kind of data sets. Like, we want to make that a level playing field. We want to make that accessible to as many people as possible. Uh, that's kind of our mission, and the way we approach it. Uh, because if it's sort of only one or two actors that have access to the large enough you know, data on EEG recordings or human brain signals to like make a, a population wide assumptions about things, you know, whoever has access to that, those data sets are going to be able to, you know, make more accurate BCIs, make more accurate control systems that will, you know, become more prevalent and collect more data and your sort of feedback loop. Uh, I don't know how to sort of, how to solve that problem better than we did with, you know, with social media and mouse clicks and search, you know, I kind of watched. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know if you've got any observations from other industries or, you know, how yeah, I mean, sort of I, mean I, I would look at what's happened with AI uh, over the last 15 years or so. Yeah. And if you think back, you know, uh, there was the, the Department of Defense DARPA had a self-driving car competition, right? <laughs> And that drove a sense of competition amongst different research groups to try different things. But then you had Netflix uh, with its contest for who can come up with a better recommendation algorithm. And so as part of that, they actually made their data set available, or at least some subset of it <laughs> at that point. Uh, and so that allowed different people. And then so that was still you know, more than 10 years ago I'm talking about now. But if you go more recently, like I remember a few years ago at MIT, I was talking with some companies that were using AI for uh, – they were training it for different things. So they were training neural networks. And, and they said, oh, and I used the data set X, which was of uh, radiology or x-rays or something. I forget what it was. But it was an actual x-ray set that had been provided by some university that was made open source in a way. I don't know, open source, but openly available yeah. so that every AI researcher could test against that, right? So, you know, I'm just thinking off the cuff here, but it seems to me that having some combination of uh, competitions and open data sets that you can test your equipment against and you can also write your software against, and then there might be perhaps better data that, you know, you can charge for, but, uh, you know, having some amount of, I think like these standard data sets, and if you look at in the AI for medical arena, I think it's a little more analogous to what you're doing because that is, you know, patient data. But those patients have said it's okay to share that data, and they're trying to find a tumor, and they they were able to get the AI to the point where it could find tumors better than many human doctors, right? Yeah. Uh, and so you'd always say test it against that standard data set first, and then we can talk about 
the extra data set. You know, of course, there's crowdsourcing elements. I remember one company was going to have like little uh, pictures. You know how you have those uh, those pictures when you uh, just prove you're not a robot and click on all the squares that have right. a, <laughs> that have a car or a traffic light. Yeah. They made they were making an app for medical students to do the same thing because medical students love looking at these these kinds of pictures. So there might be other crowdsourced you know things that could help, although. In your case, you, you have to get access to the <laughs> the EEG data in, in some way. So anyway, those are some random random thoughts. <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. Those are good examples. I mean, this is something that we we talk about a lot, where it's like, you know, how do how do we continue the mission of of leveling the playing field so it's not just you know kind of like the biggest labs, the biggest companies that that have access to the data needed to innovate in this space. Yeah. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about the commercialization of this technology. I mean, you said we're far away from being able to write. Um, you know, I, I always think of like Total Recall and the original one with Arnold Schwarzenegger where, you know, you're able to write memories. Uh, and, and it seems to me, you know, we're still trying to understand what electrical signals mean. Is that is that correct? Like we don't we don't know enough about how memories are stored to interpret, let alone write them at this stage. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got we've got a lot to learn about the brain before before we're at that stage. But um, there have been a you know there, there's been a lot more work going in on the right side of this. I, I'm trying to remember which company there was like an FDA approved uh, you know brain stimulation device that got cleared last year. I'm gonna see if I can just look it up right now. Um, Sure. So it was a brain stimulation device. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a neuroelectrics. Neuroelectrics. Uh, you know, they got an FDA approval for using like a at home. It's kind of like at home tri treatment for um, non invasive brain stimulation for treatment of uh, you know major depression at home and. Uh, it kind of got cleared last year. I think that the COVID situation kind of helped, you know, move along. Hey, like this is this is needed. Uh, these people aren't able to get treatment in hospitals as much as they used to. Um, hmm. There's there's a lot of advancements going on, but I you know, I think anybody that's really trying to sell you the the like full fidelity metaverse is just around the corner story um, is a little bit ahead of ahead of where we are today. <laughs> but uh, my 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 partner Connor, my business partner Connor on this, you know, he's he he would disagree. He's you know, oh, it's you know, two two three years away. But I think we've got a little bit more. There's still like like our you know, there's still research that needs to be done to to sort of lay the building blocks to work up to that. But um, but that's being that's kind of that's what's happening these days. I'd say. Yeah, that, that that makes sense. That it's a little bit further out. It seems like there's a lot of medical applications, right? Uh, so you mentioned this this brain stimulation. So they're stimulating the brain without doing anything invasive, right? So without right. having to put the chip in there. Right. Uh, and how are they doing that with just mild electrical currents that go on the scalp? Is that basically? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's electrical. This one. So they they uh, transcranial direct current stimulation (TDCS). Um, and yeah, you just you know, you just kind of it's it's a lot more sophisticated than I'm about to make it sound. But you know, you <laughs> you pump electricity into certain parts of the brain, and uh, you get some reliable results back from that, depending on where you're stimulating and with how much current. 
Um, and I guess what they found is that this actually has a, a reliable and repeatable way to help treat depression. Um, so I see. Really, yeah. Really and, and so it seems like there's a lot of therapeutic applications, right, for both the read and the write. You know, yeah. of course, most people – you know, know the image of Stephen Hawking and, and how he was – in fact, I don't even know how that worked. How was he able without moving any of his body to get those sentences to come up on his screen and then that voice was – were they using any kind of BCI there or was it just I don't uh, know. muscular? Just, actually, uh, I think it was in, – Intel has this group called ACAT, uh, Assistive, Assistive Technology – something AC, Assistive Technologies. Um, I think it was Intel's – team that kind of came up with that the system he was using uh i'm not certain you know i, I know a lot of some of those are are kind of based on like mu just like muscle movements and you know in the face and mouth that you can key onto but then there's also like eye tracking you can have a you know just a sort of network of commands on a computer screen you can use eye tracking to to sort of press the buttons as long as you have that and then mm. um there's also a a really common you know, non-invasive BCI trick centers around this uh, this thing called SSVEP, uh, steady state visual evoked potentials. Whereas there's this actually neat trick that the brain does where if you have like a strobing light, or you have a little square on the screen that's sort of strobing at a certain frequency, uh, and you're looking at that frequency, you can see that same frequency increase in your brain activity, in like the, you know, your brainwave data. So how people like uh, there's this company called NextMind that's sort of making a EEG VR device. Um, Neurable is another one in the space. Um, yeah, I've, you know, I've heard of Neurable a lot. So yeah. what do they do exactly? Is it just they're reading EEGs and then they're using it to control inside virtual reality? The, their their VR product was yeah they you know it was EEG based um, EEG only. And then their demonstrations that they used, uh, they created with it, used this like SSVEP thing. They would sort of code some of the objects in the VR experience to to actually like faintly strobe at a certain frequency. And you could like look at those and, you know, that would like trigger, you know, you could manipulate those just sort of by looking at them and reading the activity in your brain. <laughs> so even though it's primarily read, you're, you're you're sort of doing a little bit of a write, although you're not really writing a signal. You're more like inducing uh, brain frequency by looking at something, right? Is that kind of yeah? The trick? Well, that's why open that's why Open BCI got into this VR thing with our latest our latest product, um, Galia. You know, we were combining a number of you know four or five different sensor networks with a VR headset. Um, and is that the thing you announced with Valve recently? Yeah, or is that... yeah, yeah. That's okay. the one. Uh, that's a big um, win for you guys to work with Valve, right? It's it's been great. You know, they're they're good partners. They're interested in researching this space. Um, you know, and and they've got a great headset for it. So uh, it's nice to be able to to work on that with them. Yeah. So so describe a little bit more. Then sorry, I interrupted you there. Uh, what it's doing exactly with VR? Yeah. Um, I mean. Uh, do you want me to talk about Galia a little bit? Yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit about Galia, yeah. Sure, it's a, it's our attempt to kind of bring like advanced biometrics to uh, HMDs and to like mixed reality development. So, you know, we really think that the future of computers is going to be involve more physiological data from the body. Um, you know, it's going to not just our eyes and not just our thumbs. You know, it's going to involve our brain waves, our muscles, our heart. Um, and we are we we packed on a you know four or five different sensor networks 
into uh, the Valve Index to start, but we plan to bring it to other headsets, you know, both AR and VR. Um, so you got EEG, you've got eye data, heart data, uh, face muscles for like facial expressions, and also for like issuing commands, you know, by kind of blinking or, or moving your your face muscles. Uh, also, uh, your electrodermal activity, which is like your skin conductivity, and changes in that are, are found to really reliably uh, track to like stress and emotion emotion changes. Um, so we packed yeah, all these sensors. That seems like it would be big within video games, right? Oh yeah, I can't uh, I can't wait to play. Like I want to make Left for Dead with heart rate and sort of uh, EDA sensor inputs, so that it's you can either have the good version of the game that slows things down for you when you get more, you know, when your heart's racing and you're a little overwhelmed, and then you have sort of the mean version of the game that speeds up the zombies, you know, as you're getting <laughs> as you're getting more overwhelmed. And, and how much of that is out there in the video game industry? I know when I was researching it, you know, there was Flying Mollusk, which was one of the first companies uh, that, but it seemed like they weren't really using EEGs; they were using more like biometrics. Yeah. Um, yeah, Flying Mollusk is, is probably the best example out there right now. Um, and, uh, I mean, I think there's even there's even some... It might have been Minecraft or Fortnite. There was some streamer who just, like, played some games with a heart rate monitor, and it was it was this huge hit. I remember sort of coming across my, my news feeds. Um, Flying Mollusk is a great example. And, I mean, that's, why I, that's what I mean by saying we're, we're sort of one cycle of development away from, I think, those consumer-facing gaming examples of this where what we hope for Galia is that like you know game developers researchers consumer electronics you know R&D departments are going to buy these use them and then break it down to say okay it's not EEG that I want it's actually like I want the heart rate and I want you know what's going on with the face muscles and I can make a game around that or you know we need to provide kind of a playground for them to experiment with first and then we think after a couple of years of messing around with tech like this, there's going to be some people coming out with like, Hey, you know, check this, check this thing out that we made. And then here's how you can mess with it and start to bring the cost of the hardware down too. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it seems like there's a few people out there doing sort of effective computing type toolkits, right? Where they're, and, and are those primarily using like, like facial expressions to figure out if you're happy or sad? Is, is that kind of how those work? Uh, different stuff. I mean, the ones I'm familiar with, it's, uh, you know, I know that we work with this one as a researcher at MIT that we worked closely with on Galia, um, kind of co-inventor of the system called Guillermo Bernal. And uh, most of what I've learned about this was from talking through him. Uh, there's a lot of good effective computing work going on at the Media Lab. And he said that, you know, kind of looking over the shoulder of some of his classmates, uh, it prompted him to want to incorporate, especially the EDA, the electrodermal activity, the, the skin the skin activity was a big one for kind of emotional stuff. And then his previous work at the Media Lab for his thesis was uh, about bringing, uh, bringing facial expressions to VR through, uh, some people do it with cameras, kind of like inside of the, the headset, but he, he approached it by using like muscle sensors sort of around mm. the face pad area. And then yeah. he mapped that to like, okay, if you're smiling, this is what the, the data changes and I can, you know, apply that to an avatar. Um, mm. So, you know, di there's different signals that you can use for that kind of stuff. I think in our, you know, in our opinion, it's the, uh, the 
multimodal or using more than one type of data is gonna is really the way to go. And and we you know you're gonna get the most success if you're not just focusing on any one type of data, but you're finding ways to incorporate multiple. And that's what you're doing with with Galia with the the different different sensors. Now yeah. is that just is that an SDK or is SDK and a headset or? It's it's so it's gonna be. A valve index, you know, fully integrate. We're going to do the integration of all of our sensors. We kind of replace the the strap and the the face pad that comes with it with our own, you know, sensor infused hardware. And then it'll have it's going to have software for getting the raw data into a variety of programming languages and also some SDKs for you know doing uh, examples, demonstrations and examples of how to like apply the biometric data in Unity and, and game engines. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. That's really where you have to go. It seems to me, though, there's just a, a big classification issue here, right? So what you're really doing is you're taking signals and you're trying to map it, you know, like your banana example or go left or go right, right? So you're right. dealing with a, uh, with kind of a, a small subset of commands, right? And then you're trying to say, okay, this is most likely means they want to go left. This most likely means you want to go right, right? Um, and so it's classifying the, the brain data or the biometric data along with this uh, set of commands. But but it seems like that's also not very standardized either, right? It's just for whichever application you're working on, you come up with a set of possible commands, and then that company tries to map those signals to that set of commands. Is that pretty much what's happening right now? There's there's some efforts to there's some efforts to standardize it, but yeah, I mean I'd say that that is where we're at. Um, and it, it is it's like kind of, like I can't just take your SDK and say okay is the guy sad is he happy <laughs> right not right off the bat that's not what we're trying to tackle um, but I do you know OpenBCI historically we focused on being a hardware company first and then you know growing from there uh, we we've, we've been at it for you know seven years now actually so we've seen the space explode and like you know there maybe there was ten other companies you would rattle off and now there's a couple hundred. Um, and a, a lot of them kind of fall into, you know, they're hardware companies, and then there's there's a, a lot of like machine learning companies, you know, that are are tack like they're not they don't make their own hardware, they don't even collect their own data, they're just sort of like we're going to solve this classification, you know, what we're going to sell is like a classification pipeline for, you know, for emotions, and we're going to do it based on, you know, however little biometric data we we need. To you know, get a level of accuracy you want. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you know, if you look at another industry, virtual reality, like you know, there were big predictions for it back in 2012 or 13 when uh, uh, Facebook bought Oculus, and then, yeah. you know, what they found was just that people didn't like putting the hardware on. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the companies in that space moved away from consumer towards enterprise applications where they can make you put the headset on. <laughs> Because you know you have to go through corporate training or something. Yeah. Uh, and then with the release of the Oculus Quest and the Quest 2, it seems like it's back on a little bit of an upswing. But they've kind of come, you know, having a standalone headset that didn't require being connected to the computer and other things was was part of it. Um, you know, uh, how popular are these these headsets, either yours or others? Like, what are we talking about on the order of there's a hundred thousand out there, there's a million out there, there's a hundred million? Uh, I mean, I think. At the consumer level, I'd say Muse. You know, I'd want to know what Muse is. Uh, there's a company called Muse that sold. They really went after like the meditation, wellness device angle, and I think they hit the right price point. 
they kept the hardware relatively simple and they're probably yeah, and, it, and it was well designed too the muse one it doesn't yeah. look like a, a bunch of sensors on your head right right no ours ours we went full we went for like the full sci-fi like we're gonna put <laughs> the entire cage on your head and you're gonna be able to measure every location um i think you know muse is probably the it's I, my guess would be that's like the most widely distributed, you know, quote unquote, BCI uh, consumer, you know, neurotech product at the moment. But um, I could be wrong. Um, I don't know. I, I think I think what we've you know, we've seen that there is a there's a big individual and consumer market for this kind of bigger than you think. Um, we've built a nice business around it where there are people that are outside of researcher. Uh, research labs and outside of big companies that are still interested in experimenting with this. And, you know, it's kind of uh, somewhere in between, you know, the uh, researcher at a big lab and somebody who likes messing around with Arduinos and Raspberry Pis. you know, there's, there's a growing community of these sort of hackers and bio makers and, and different people that, uh, you know, that, that we owe our success to. I see. Yeah. So it's in kind of that, homebrew computer club type type of people who like to have which is pretty big these days for now yeah but we yeah. you know we've also seen most major consumer tech companies that you can recognize have have bought an open bci product at some time you know so we've nice. we've sort of watched it proliferate out into these big companies and uh while we don't you know we we sell hardware online and we don't always know what they're doing, you know, they ship yeah. it to their, uh, but we've seen uh, in the last couple of years, there's a lot more conversations about people reaching out to us that are saying, hey, so like, this is what we're working on, you know, is it something that you guys would know how to approach this problem? And that's when my job gets really interesting is, you know, and. Uh, yeah. And well, what kinds of things have you heard without necessarily giving away, you know, confidential details, but what kinds of things are people using the OpenBCI headset for if you had to come up with some categories or. Yeah, it's uh, I think a lot of it is there's a, there's a big group that's just sort of user experience research, um, you know, so it's trying to quantify, you know, like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to wire you up with EEG and heart rate sensors and and the, the skin sensors i was talking about earlier you know and uh you're gonna watch this video and you're gonna tell me how you felt about it and then i'm gonna see if you know your reactions to it were visible in the data in any way that i can like extrapolate across a population so you know i'd say uh reactions to user experience and reactions to different content digital content videos vr content which is what we're trying to tackle with you know with the uh, with Galia. And that's why I think the video game industry is, is, is all of it, not all of a sudden maybe, but is like a new, a new contender in the space because they know they're like, yeah, we do, we do this research all the time. You know, like we're like, go play the game. Tell us what you thought about it, you know, and we're going to tweak the game. And like that feedback loop is very familiar to them. Uh, and the opportunity to like instrument that with some data is, is very attractive to, you know, to a lot of companies out there. So it's kind of like those uh, political focus groups we see on, on like CNN or, so, or Fox or somewhere where the politician's giving a speech and then the, the people in the audience are going, whether it's positive or negative, and you see the lines, except it would be like EEG values coming through, right? Yeah, that's, that's one way. That's a good way to put it. Um, I think, you know, I, I think one of the things that we talk about and kind of want to see is um, – 
this notion of like it's a commentary like this closed loop computing system Sunora, where it's you know the the content that you're watching and viewing is changing your body's responses and then you know that's one way of the, the sort of one direction of interaction and then what we want to make possible with some of our products and work and the people we partner with is how does then the content that you're viewing change based on your reaction to it, you know, and, and right. like closing the loop. Cause I think that's, you know, to your dream of, of fully immersive gaming content and uh, you know, and making the matrix possible. If the matrix isn't responding to your body's reactions the right way, it's not going to convince you that it's real. So right. Well, you know, you in the, in the second or third Matrix movie, they, they they mentioned that initially the Matrix was this beautiful, blissful world with no <laughs> stress, and that the human body refused to accept it, <laughs> and so they had to make it a little more challenging and a little less, uh, you know, like paradise, if you will. <laughs> well, th- yeah, there's this interesting thing that's come out of conversations I've had with uh, with with scientists and researchers who use VR in their work. Um, they they love VR because it your brain thinks it's real. You know, you can trick your brain into thinking it's real and you can run a very controlled experiment that you would never be able to do in the real world in a virtual environment. But what the, some of the interesting feedback I've gotten from people is that it's got to look good. Like the, the reactions are less real if the visual, if like the VR experience is like low budget, that they're like, you can tell that like, you don't get that real fear response unless it's like, it's like high end, you know, if, if, you, yeah. if you try and cut the corners, your body like knows it's fake. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. You know, really for me, cool. I always talk about this experience I had with ping pong, playing ping pong in virtual reality, where it felt so real that I decided to put the paddle down on the table at the end of the match. But of course there was no table and yeah. the controller fell to the floor. <laughs> Uh, but it wasn't so much that it was high fidelity, like in terms of graphics, it was that the responsiveness, like right. it felt like I was hitting a real ball, like the physics work that they did to make it seem like wherever my hand was would hit the ball or not, that it just made it feel real. So it kind of tricked me into thinking <laughs> that I was really playing ping pong. I think my first moment like that was uh, was super hot. It was, for, I think, one of the first VR games that I was like, Oh my! It just changed. I'm like, I can just like move out of the way, and it's like my real, it you know, the, the body tracking in that game was uh, was really good, and it it just kind of had like an aha moment. I remember the first time I played that at a friend's at a friend's place. Uh, I yeah, I, I like talk actually. You know, what was your, what are some of your favorite VR? VR experiences, or do you not get into it too much these days? You know, I don't, I don't do as much these days. But you know, there were quite a few, you know, a couple of years ago who, that I was, uh, you know, playing around with. Uh, but I do think that like there's a number of companies trying to do wellness experiences with VR. So getting right. back to the Muse idea, and you know, I've been meditating for years, so it's interesting to see technological approaches, you know, which are more based on biofeedback. I mean, we had one company that was started by a guy that was doing performance for Olympic athletes mm-hmm. and you know they were measuring your heart rate and the VR experience would change you know that company didn't make it but it was a cool you know experience uh, there was another company that was making a dragon flying game called Dragon Flight I don't know if they ever came out with it yeah. uh, down in Santa Monica but that was really cool I felt like I was flying around the Grand Canyon on the back of a dragon you know yeah so. I think and you're it, it you're right that those those wellness examples is kind of another, other than like user experience measurement, there's those kind of wellness experiences you talked about that are using the types of hardware that OpenBCI makes. Uh, and it is, 
that's that's the closed loop. You know, they're they're the ones kind of on the cutting edge of how can we modify you know your your level of stress by having having a bio or biometric re, you know data from your body powering the music, powering the lighting, powering the sort of environment that you're in to guide you towards a certain state that you want to be in. And that kind of, you know, biofeedback or neurofeedback training, it works, works really well. Yeah. So it seems like that's a big application area. So we've got user, user reactions, measuring those kind of biofeedback, um, you know, for wellness is another area, video games. So let's talk a little bit more about how it would work in video games is the idea that if you're too calm, it would introduce more stress. It would like you know, have more action of a guy shooting at you. Like, like, have you talked to video game developers about this? Uh, you know, I think that I think at this stage, it's it, it'll be less. Like I said, there's kind of one round of 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 research to be done. Where right now, it's going to be about less about like games and hardware that taps into those biometric signals and uses them right off the bat. I think right now it's going to be more like, how can I, use, how can I quantify your reaction to like, I want to make this segment of gameplay the most intense that I can, you know, and, and if I uh, collect the right biometric data from the people play testing it, you know, I can kind of quantify how changes I'm making to the game are increasing or, or decreasing the intensity of, of, you know, that segment of the, the gameplay. I think that's, what's going to be happening over the next you know couple years but from learning that you know the learning that people are going to the game developers are going to get from doing that type of research they're going to say like hey it's you know it's the data that we learned to to keep an eye out for is really the the eda stuff you know it's the electus the skin electrodermal activity if we put a sensor like that into a bracelet or into a vr controller you know and and package that up as part of the hardware then we could start to like make games that really trigger off of that, you know, in our direct to consumer focused. Um, I don't know if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah you yeah. almost need to have it kind of the sensors there as part of the hardware that they're already investing in, which might be a VR headset, for example, right. And not have to, to buy additional hardware. I mean, that's, I think the trick to some of the establishment of this stuff and getting it really out there is for game developers to just assume you have just like today, you can assume somebody has an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or something, uh, and you can get heart rate from yeah. from that. Like I've seen some companies started that that they just assume that now they don't need to provide. Used to be they had to provide you know and sell you a little piece of hardware to measure your your heart rate on your finger or your pulse on your finger, for example. Exactly. And and now they don't have to. So at some point, you know, they should be able to assume maybe OpenBCI has a role in that, right? <laughs> Where you can assume somebody is following the OpenBCI standards. Uh, whoever the hardware maker is potentially. Yeah, we hope so. I mean, that's what your point about the Apple Watch. Like, I think Apple's the, you know, the they haven't debuted their intentions yet, but I think they're a sleeper for. They've got some of the most widely spread sense, you know, high-powered sensors on the planet. The iPhones and Apple Watches are, you know, in terms of the the lidar that they've put out now and the cameras and the opportunities for AR through both of those, and then the Apple Watch biometric data that it's picking up, you know, the ways you could use that, not just for games, but really more for, I think, the health, you know, like there's, there's new papers every week, it feels like about how, you know, some simple heart rate data from a Fitbit can be used to, you know, as a predictor, an early predictor for these different types of illnesses that you would never have really connected the two with. Um, yeah. 
So like widespread dissemination of these biometric sensors is just going to, I think it's going to create connections that, you know, we as OpenBCI are like, okay, maybe we play a part in this, but it's not like it's going to be our, our explicit intention was to figure out the biomarkers for Alzheimer's, but that may be an accidental, you know, development that happens as this stuff gets more out there and, and into the hands of people that are researching different areas. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, therapeutic medical applications is a big area in the near term. Is yeah. Apple is Apple working on anything that would be more of a real brain interface, like an EEG or invasive or non-invasive that you know of, or not really? I, I, I can't say. I wouldn't be able to say. Like, I don't, I don't know what they're up to. You don't hear rumors, insider rumors. <laughs> haven't heard any. Haven't heard any juicy rumors about them at the moment. Uh, yeah. I saw some. Some news came out last week about some of their uh, sort of VR, AR, you know, glasses that they were that right. that were coming out. Um, they but they still haven't. They, think. Yeah, they still haven't uh, really put those out there, have they? Yeah, I haven't seen. They've them. been working on it for years. I mean, I've been hearing <laughs> Apple VR since 2016. That's four years ago, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the positive side, you've got wellness and you've got therapeutic applications. Let's talk a little bit about the negative side, right? I mean, I can see in gaming. So, you know, when I was in the free-to-play game industry, you know, they, they used to induce stress by having timed events. Like, oh my God, you have to get these five treasures by this time, and if you don't, you know, uh, then the event's over, so you won't win. So basically, right. it was a way to induce some stress to get the user to act and pay if they if they can't make it. Uh, and so I could see, you know, certainly within, you know, Facebook and Zynga and places like this where they could use biometric data to figure out how to get you to pay more right? <laughs> by watching your level of stress. I mean, is that a possibility or? It's a possibility, you know, and uh, we, you know, we do our best to make sure that that's, that's not how the technology is applied. I think the way that you get around that is by putting it in the hands of as many people as possible so that, you know, the, those kind of exploitative uses of the technology get, you know, hopefully aren't the dominant ones and that, you know, the, there's always going to be out there. This is opportunity for negative use, but uh, yeah. the positive applications, you know, are hopefully attracting more attention and, and more investment and more, you know, more activity. Um, but yeah, what you described is, you know, is definitely possible. You know, the, the advertising industry, I'm sure, will figure out uh, interesting and unique ways to use your biometric data for persuasion. Um, yeah, in, in yeah. Areas, you know, all over the place. Very much. And, you know, maybe that's bigger than games. It's advertising in general. Where, yeah. Uh, because, I mean, people say, you know, okay, tech is now the biggest industry in the world, but it's really advertising if you talk about Google and Facebook, right? Yeah, I mean, I, and that, that's where, that's my background. I, I, you know, I spent seven years in the ad tech industry before working with OpenBCI, and you know, we saw. I know how much there's billions and billions of dollars being made off of your clicks. You know, imagine what it's going to be when it's your your brain data and your heart data, um, and how those all tie together. You know, right, I, I what do makes think, you click? What makes you click more? Right? right? Is that entire Facebook's entire <laughs> yeah. their entire business is based on that's that. definitely a catchphrase for like a neuromarketing company. You know, what <laughs> makes you click? <laughs> like, uh, I think some of that, you know, I think some of that has to be solved by regulation of like, hey, you you can't use you can't create these exploitative psychological scenarios, you know, based on certain data that that you're collecting. Um, 
I think some of that is also, you know, as a hardware manufacturer, we think about this a lot and, and really it's um, Apple and Facebook are always at odds with each other because Apple owns the operating system to, you know, the mobile devices of, I don't know what they're, you know, let's say half or whatever they're at these days, you know, the Apple market, the iPhone market share, the operating systems that we've built, you know, on PC, on, on mobile, they really are, are at the core of these privacy debates. They're often kind of the best mechanism to deal with it. I think when Apple introduced, it was this really subtle change, but I remember following along with it as like an ad tech guy being like, oh my God, this is revolutionary. Um, I, all of a sudden, you know, when, when things would ask for your location data, you remember those little pop-ups, yep. you know, they'd be yep. like, hey, like, you know, let you have your location. And it was like, yes or no. You had like a yes or no option for years. And then all of a sudden there was this like, only when I'm using the app right. that emerged. And like, I think that was one of the more quietly revolutionary changes in, in user privacy controls that that's happened in my lifetime. And I think that there, there's opportunities for, you know, for the people at sort of the operating system level of these, of BCI tech that's being developed to, to think about new mechanisms for permissioning the data that's being collected. Uh, and I really hope that, you know, I hope that OpenBCI can uh, acquire the resources to fund the, the research that needs to go into that. Uh, but if not us, I hope that other, other actors in the neurotech space start to think about it from that level where, you know, it should really, it needs to be the user that says yes or no to the to the ways the data are being applied, and it can't be set up in a way like that you know end user licenses on the internet or cookie prompts where you're just like <laughs> okay you can either say yes or not use this thing ever you right know, right like and that's where I think the regulation needs to come in where it's like you can't just set up a scenario where like you either say yes or you're locked out forever I mean if it's a service like fine you can't use that service unless you let them you know do a certain thing but and then I think there's a technological solution where it's, you know, I think there's going to be some of the companies that are going to be winners are going to be the ones that provide users with the privacy controls they want. Um, and then it's just my sincere hope that human beings vote with their wallets and, you know, and, and choose to value that privacy control rather than, you know, take the experience that doesn't favor it at all because it's a dollar cheaper or something like that. Yeah. So you think there might be some regulation at some point? I mean, there probably does need to be. You know, I was listening to Elon Musk talk about regulation of AI, and he was saying, you know, there was there were a lot more plane crashes before the FAA came along. I mean, I think some of us are always like, ah, we don't need more regulation. But he was saying maybe there should be uh, a regulatory agency that tells Tesla and tells Facebook what you can and cannot do with, with AI uh, before it's too late. Uh, uh, with BCIs, I think we're pretty far from having anything like that, right? Yeah, I mean, the the fortunate thing is it's very, while it's very, very easy to spin up the dystopian futures for the technology, you know, that it's not, we still have time before they're sort of fully realized at the consumer, you know, level. Uh, and my, you know, my sincere hope is that, you know, the companies advancing in that space, the fastest are ones that are actually putting some thought into how do we how do we sort of correct the mistakes of of social media and the internet and you know the attention based advertising economy and and kind of give control back to the individual users a bit more. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you know, I, I, I obviously do like to talk about sci-fi and dystopian futures, but it <laughs> seems to me, you know, probably the first time I started to think about, you know, can computers read your brain was an old movie from the 1980s called Firefox with mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood. I don't know if you remember this, but the Russians had developed a fighter jet that could read the commands from your brain. And so it, it was it would basically let the fighter pilot, uh, you know, react faster than their opponent because you don't have to use your hands. Uh, the, we get back to that electrical signals traveling to the hand, to the control, etc. And then, you know, he went uh, – so Clint Eastwood was a spy. They sent in the Soviet Union, and he got in the plane. And, and in order for it to recognize commands, he had to think in Russian, right, <laughs> to tell it whether to fire a missile or, or whatever. And, of course, you know, it was an American movie, so he stole the, the, the fighter <laughs> – um, the fighter jet to bring it back. But it seems to me that actually that could be done now as long as you uh, customize the commands for specific fighter pilots, right? There's there's some cool stuff where, uh, yeah, like uh, people are using uh, biometric data and like EEG data even as like a, as like a authentication, you know, uh, mechanism. So like I love, I for one personally love the advent of fingerprint sensors for unlocking my phone and my computer it saves me countless hours of pin entering that i never thought i would get back um and i do think i saw there's you know one paper application of openbci's tools where they they kind of made this little ear like a in-ear earbud you know sort of headphone and uh they hooked it up so that it was you know it was it was reading electrical signals from, you know, from your brain, from inside your ear. And they were using that as like an unlock code for a phone. And it could tell the difference between like me and my phone versus you. If I put, you know, you put the earphones on, you wouldn't be able to do it. Um, So I think that they're. Okay. So that works today. It does work. That works today. So you could use it as a fighter pilot to say only this pilot is allowed to fly this plane. But you could also today say, here are the 10 commands, fire a missile or, uh, you know, go out, land the plane or whatever. As long as you have a limited number of commands, it sounds like it, it could be done today where you could classify the electrical yeah. signals. Yeah. You could definitely set up the classification for those commands. And uh, if you if it's really the fighter pilot scenario, I would want them to be hooked up to my muscles and not my brain activity because I, <laughs> it's a lot more reliable and fast to, for me to for me to trigger the EMG than the EEG. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, speaking of sci-fi, we'll end with another sci-fi example, which I don't know if you've read the Ernest Klein's new book, Ready Player Two. I haven't read it yet. Uh, 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 Connor's a big fan of Ready Player One. We've talked about it. You know, I I know that you, you want to talk about the Oni a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. <laughs> for those who haven't read it in in the new book, so in his first book, it was about VR headsets and the Oasis. And it came out in 2010, and there were no really commercial VR headsets for consumers, but within a few years, there were. So in the new book, he jumps to the far future technology and says, you have this neural interface. You just put it on your forehead, and therefore, you know, it feels like you're actually inside the virtual reality world. But, you know, and, it, and that we're probably a ways away from that, but an interesting aspect of that was you could record yourself doing anything, whether you're playing baseball or flying or having sex. And then you could give that experience to anyone else, and they would feel like they were really going through it. And so, you know, how far away are we away from being able to record experiences uh, and then turn around and replay those experiences? Would you say? So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to to say, but I mean, I 
I do think that uh, I think that the Oni is you know that's that's possible. I think that that's like that from from the little bit that I've learned on the science side of this and the engineering that like as we develop down this road, you know, yeah, like this kind of full full immersion VR experience. Uh, you know, it, it might it's going to start with a VR headset. I think the progression of tech in those books is actually very accurate, where it's like, okay, you've got the screens first, and then you're gonna you're gonna uh, bypass sort of the meat, the eyes, you know, the, the biological way and go straight into the brain. I, you know, I don't so know. What do you think? Two decades, a decade, five decades, a hundred years. What do you think? I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to say, I'm going to say within 20 years where some of the invasive stuff like Neuralink is, is, is like putting images in front of your eyes that aren't there. You know, I want to say, I want to say 20 years from now, we're going to be able to start like feeding info in directly to the brain that like stimulates the real senses, you know, like your smell and your, you know, your vision and your sense of touch. Um, And then I, once we're there, then it's just a matter of, okay, you know, how precisely can we map what a smell is and what it lights up in your brain so that I could record it and send it to you. But if we're able to actually achieve that kind of like I can write senses into your brain that you know that are that aren't actually happening in front of you rather than relying on screens or you know relying on like a, a fake physical representation of it um, then I think your you know your full recordings uh, future is only around the corner from that yeah so 20 years is not that long when you think about it right 20 years ago we you know when you talk about video games we had MMORPGs it was 40 years ago that we had the arcade games right yeah so it's actually in less time from now than from Pac-Man to World of Warcraft right you're saying uh, potentially we could be there i think so i think you'll i you know i, I think it's been the speed that it's been moving already it's just going to accelerate you know we've seen the focus and attention in this in this neurotech space flowing in over our you know our seven years in business uh i think it's just going to accelerate and then it's just a matter of okay you know how much how much does it get slowed down by you know by regulations and requirements around you know i think the surgical options are are where the real that's where the real sci-fi use cases are going to be you know be driven by but they're also going to be like a less adopted. They're not going to be as widespread right. because they're more dangerous. You know, the, so it's the not like stuff is, Elon Musk was complaining that people are saying, you know, that he's going to make them chip themselves. He's like, no, we're not going to make you put in a chip. That's not. Yeah, I think he's going to have plenty of, you know, 20 years. We're going to have 100 people that have that kind of implant. And it's going to be, you know, there's going to be some some research papers being written about, oh, my God, you know, we did it. This is now possible. Uh and then it'll start to, to disseminate from there to the regular population. But I think, you know, the real the real widespread consumer devices will need to be non-invasive just because of all the extra stuff that comes into play when you're, you know, when you're doing anything surgical. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. I mean, I think non-invasive is where, where it's at before it's going to be widely adopted. But, you know, in terms of recording, I mean, couldn't you even do that today if you assume uh, that the electrical signals – you know, our, we don't know exactly what they mean, but we could start recording them now. So theoretically, you could have a little headset like Amuse that people take around with them and tell you what they were doing all day, 
uh, with these different activities, and we could build up a huge database uh, and then later decode them. Um, I, I, this is sort of a sci-fi thing too, I guess. I, I totally, I think, I think that the the commercial opportunity for that data set is immense, as is the the need to make it not concentrated in one any one person or company's hands. Yeah, that's really the danger, right? If if one one group gets a hold, you almost need like an open genome type thing. Right. Or a, uh, that's, that's, a great, like, that's a great idea. Like open the open genome for for BCIs is a project that I could totally get behind. Yeah, for brain data. I mean, yeah. I was thinking about uh, uh, another sci-fi novel uh, by Neil Stevenson called Fall, where uh, they were you know doing having a digital afterlife. And uh, figuring out the connectome of the brain, uh, and once you figured it out, according to you know one um, one school of thought, you can then have a digital afterlife because you can become an NPC, you know, in in the virtual reality afterwards. But they had people who were dying before we had figured it out, and so they said, okay, go ahead and map my brain and record it. We know you can't do it yet, but maybe someday you'll be able to use that data yeah. in this way. You know, I I think it was uh, was it I think it was Neuromancer. The book that I, they do that. They have a thing in in you know, the William Gibson book, Neuromancer. Uh, it's like a, they sort of accumulated all of the actions and responses of this like famous hacker, and they made him like a program. And like, oh, right. you know, it's like even in new scenarios that he had never encountered in his life, they sort of had like the AI driven like how would you have most likely responded? And it's like a real character in the book. You know, he's got dialogue and talks like a normal person and all that. But it's this computer construct. And at the end of the book, it's sort of like, I think this is where it comes down to the what I talked about with the, you know, people using VR for research. It's got to feel real. Uh, in the book, this construct character knows it's fake. Like it, it, it's not real enough for it, and it knows it's like I know I'm just like a recording of this person who doesn't exist anymore. And it's like its greatest wish is to like to to be unplugged you know at the end of the book it's just sort of like i want to like i don't want to do this anymore i want like i want to this is my one act of free will as a thing you know is to be like i want off this ride and i think you know if we're going to go down that sci-fi future we got to make it we got to make it full fidelity otherwise i think it's going to get into some some weird uh you know the over 12 hours of oni usage territory where you know the the brain can only handle so much if it's not not exactly perfect. Yeah, and this touches on you know my my favorite question in sci-fi, which is what is real and what is not. <laughs> That's a lot of what <laughs> Philip K. Dick you know wrote about in in his many novels. Oh yeah. Well, well, this has been great. Thanks so much for for joining us here on the podcast. Uh, maybe tell people where they can learn more about OpenBCI and and what you guys are doing. Yeah. So check out uh, OpenBCI.com. You know we've got uh, info about our our open source low cost neuroscience products there. Uh, we ship globally. And then uh, for news on our latest adventure into the VR space, uh, you can go to Galia.co. And how do you spell Galia? G-A-L-E-A. Galia.co. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is great. Nice talking to you. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, bye. All right.